Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Lana Kylik about sexy seaweed. But first up, here's the news about rotten eggs for longer life. Human cells rejuvenated in a dish. Researchers at the University of Exeter in Britain have made old human cells younger by treating them with a new drug based on hydrogen sulfide, rotten egg gas. One of the causes of ageing appears to be the accumulation of senescent cells in tissues and organs, cells that have stopped functioning but refuse to die and be cleared away. Ageing is the biggest risk factor for diabetes, cancer, heart disease, dementia and many other illnesses. Hydrogen sulphide has previously been shown in mice to clear senescent cells from their bodies and make them act and appear younger. So the next step is human. Cells in a Petri dish. Senescent cells don't divide but secrete a cocktail of pro-inflammatory chemicals and tissue remodelling factors that induces senescence in neighbouring cells. They're contagious. The researchers are working on the hypothesis that senescence happens because of a loss of our ability to turn genes on and off at the right time and in the right place. All the genes your body needs are in your DNA, but they're not all switched on all the time. Splicing factors are a group of 300 proteins that cells use to switch genes on to make proteins or switch them off to stop making proteins in response to the environment. The levels of splicing factors in cells declines with age, so the ability to switch genes declines too. Treating old human skin cells with a drug based on hydrogen sulfide increases the levels of splicing factors. The new drug targets the energy-producing mitochondria to reduce harm from the hydrogen sulphide to other parts of cells. Elderly mice treated with hydrogen sulphide lost the wrinkles in their skin, had their hair regrow and go dark again, and showed more endurance, strength and better memory. There was also delay in the onset of cataracts in the mice. The treated human cells showed improved effects on the level of splicing factor expression, cell proliferation, apoptosis, cell death, DNA replication, DNA damage control, telomere length, and senescence-related secretory complex expression in senescent primary human skin cells. In other words, they got younger. The paper was titled, Mitochondria-Targeted Hydrogen Sulfide Attenuates Endothelial Senescence, by selective induction of splicing factors HNR-MPD and SRSF2 and was published in the Open Access Impact Journal 
on ageing. The researchers hope this work will lead to drugs that can clear senescent cells from the human body and prevent senescence spreading through our bodies to cause the inflammatory diseases of old age, so that humans can experience the rejuvenation that, so far, only mice have been able to enjoy. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Seaweed for life. Lana Kylick is a PhD student at the University of New South Wales and is working with the Sydney Institute of Marine Science. She's currently doing a PhD in marine socioecology and working with a team of marine ecologists working to restore vital habitat across Sydney and Port Stephens. Her latest project has been Operation Crayweed. I began by asking her if she's restoring underwater forests of seaweed. That's exactly right. As part of Operation Crayweed, I'm working with a team of marine ecologists from the University of New South Wales, and we're currently bringing back a really vital seaweed to the coastline of Sydney. And this seaweed is called crayweed, so called because it supports the vital crayfish population in Sydney. And it actually went missing a couple of decades ago. And so this team of scientists are bringing it back to 70 kilometres of coastline in Sydney. So why did it go away? Ah, that's a good question. So they think, they're not sure, but it disappeared around, you know, the 1970s, early 80s. And it seemed to be coincident with the same time that those, do you remember those short ocean outfalls that occurred on some of the, some of the most prime beaches in Sydney, like Bondi and Manly? So those short ocean outfalls basically released raw sewage into the water, causing a sharp decline in water quality. And sort of in the late 90s, they had the brilliant idea, and it came from hydrologists in California, to extend those ocean outfalls, which sort of, you know, had the sewage outfalls, to 3.5 kilometres. And that's resulted in a, in a vast improvement in water quality across Sydney, which is a great thing for, for swimmers, but it's also a great thing for the seaweeds. So the seaweeds didn't come back on their own? That's exactly right. So they sort of waited and to see what, whether they would recruit. So this particular kind of seaweed called crayweed, it recruits sexually. So the plant can either be male or it can be female. And so basically this type of sexual recruitment did not result in any new recruits around Sydney. They just weren't seeing it come back. So that's hence why the scientists have sort of actively taken control and developed restoration methods so that they can transplant from the healthy locations to the north and south of Sydney into the gap in the map of Sydney where it's gone missing. It's underwater gardening. How do you get it to establish? <laughs> That's a great question. Yes, yeah, so basically it is like our underwater gardening and it does feel very much like we're tradies working underwater. <laughs> so we, we take the, the seaweed transplants from south and northern populations and we actually sort of pluck them out, you know, and, and they're our donor sites. We'll take them onto the boat 
and take them to the location where it's missing and attach them onto mats that have already been drilled down onto the substrate. And so in that way, it is kind of like a replanting or a, or a gardening episode. And it's a gardening where the hold fast, so that foot of the algae, the sort of bit where, it's, where it holds fast onto the substrate, gets placed directly onto a mat and gets tied onto the mat and will sort of result in about 40 to 50 plants on one particular mat and we'll do that several times in one location so that when you've finished a transplant site you'll look behind you a little bit like gardening when you look behind you and you you see what you've accomplished and you'll turn around and you'll see an entire field of underwater forest that just looks gorgeous beating you know the field can be up to two meters in length of those beautiful adult transplants and so where you've had bare rock and pretty much you know, nothing there before, you look around and you see that gorgeous, you know, garden that you've created, which is which is um, a really good feeling of accomplishment. So you're tying them to mats rather than digging them into the soil? Exactly. So that, that by tying those holdfasts onto the mat, they're securing them against the, the, the tides and the currents. And that particular type of crayweed is quite intertidal and it exists around two, three, four metre mark and sometimes even higher up and closer to shore. So by t- tying it really securely in that huge storm surgy area, we're able to sort of t- to secure them and they will stay in place for even up to a year, even through vast summer storms. Um, and it's the adult plants that stay in place but the idea is, as I mentioned before, they're sexual. They have sex. So those plants, the male and female, they're going to release their sex cells in the water column. They will find each other of a, of a beautiful evening and those two cells will come together to form a zygote. And that zygote itself will fall to the bottom of the substrate wherever it lands, usually quite close to the edges of that mat. And the next generation will be formed, so that's a recruits. And the project has been really successful and the team have, have had a lot of success with recruits. They've just completed you know, 10 sites across Sydney, which is a, was a huge effort. And they're finding babies at just about every site. So there's been variable success, like some sites not as successful as others. But overall, it's been an you know, enormous good news story, which is great to hear in the environmental space. How difficult is it to get down to the right depth and lay the mesh and plant the seaweed? <laughs> I would say very. <laughs> there, there are far more experienced divers than myself on the team and, and they've been doing it part and parcel for umpteen years. So their skill level is phenomenal. So I often look at the masters, my supervisor Adriana Vegas and Alex Campbell and Ziggy Martinelli and also Damon Bolton. George Woods is the, is the PhD student who's basically leading the project and the restoration work. And I watch their skills in action and they are basically tying like expert weavers <laughs> <laughs> in extreme surf conditions and surge and their diving skills are phenomenal and their breath hold is also great so they're able to to secure on scuba for a really long time so I'm always learning from them about new techniques of how to do it quickly but we're also sort of reaching out a lot to the community and we've had incredible divers from who volunteered their time from dive clubs and also just the general public so you know Sam Baxter is one that's just just joined about just every dive that he can join and so his expertise has been wonderful to have on board so it's those sorts of volunteer aspects from the community as well which has just made this project such a success. You've got a lot of people helping out as well, citizen science? 
Exactly. So as part of our citizen science, we've also had volunteers from high school groups. George has been George Wood has been working with the Duke of Edinburgh program. So some brilliant students who've been coming in on a weekly basis. So as well as as the restoration methods and the transplant itself, there's ongoing monitoring that takes place. So as with any restoration project, it's not just gardening, but <laughs> as I'm sure lots of gardeners out there are, they, they are quite scientific in their gardening. So it's about sort of experimenting and understanding what types of faunal communities we might be bringing back at the same time, how successful the recruits have been in terms of how fast they're growing, what types of herbivory pressure there is on those transplants and on those new recruits. So there's a wide range of research questions that are associated with that restoration work. And then George has been working with those Duke of Edinburgh students who've been looking at all that huge number of hours of video monitoring and they've been able to sort of ID the fish that they've seen the abundance and the type of fish and also the types of invertebrate species like the types of shell you know shells shellfish that they're seeing whether they're seeing some herbivory from urchins or or whether there's sharks that are sort of visiting or blue swimmer crabs so they're looking at a wide range of the return and of course the two most valuable species in fisheries that we're hoping to bring back are the um, the crayfish and the abalone. So we're taking a, a, a close look at the monitoring for that for those two as well. And how quickly are they starting to come back after you've planted? Those transplants, um, quite remarkable. We've had them within sort of, you know, months. There's been uh, recruitment, so babies sighted on the edges of those transplant mats within about, you know, four to, to eight months. And there's been at one site, which is Long Bay in Sydney, there's actually been about six or seven generations of crayweed babies. So that means that not only is that are those original recruits having babies, but that next generation are, are breeding, are breeding <laughs> if you can say so, are, are reproducing as well, which means that the original members of the team have sort of become grandfathers many times or grandmothers very many times over, which is just a fantastic uh, success to see. How do you tell the sex of the crayweed? The crayweed has the two different sexes, which is quite unusual in the seaweed families. The crayweed actually can be either male or female. On the fronds, or as they're called, the blades, or like the leaf in a, in a, in a plant, on those blades you'll actually see these raised pimples that can either be male or female. And they're the sex cells, actually, and they're called conceptuals. And those conceptuals, if they're rounded and they look like a really enlarged pimple, they're actually female. But if they're long and slit-like, they're male. So the plant itself can either be male or female based on the shape of those conceptuals. So when we sort of, you know, collect from the donor sites, we make sure to have sort of a wide range of male and females and enough abundance that there'll be a possibility for, for sexual reproduction. We also take the seaweeds out of the water when we're transporting them by boat. And by taking them out of the water, we're actually stressing them by exposing them to oxygen. And that stressing period is actually really beneficial. <laughs> the scientists have found out from a lot of trial and error that by stressing them outside in the water, outside the water, they then think there's the last hooray of life. So when they go down and below water again, it, it's, it's thought that they sort of re will release their, their sex cells and that mixing and that reproduction takes place. It's unknown really what the trigger is though. Like it could be the fact that they're stressed and in oxygen. There could be other environmental triggers and that's really another research question that scientists are really interested in. So you can see with this complex transplant operation that's been going on for years and years and the scientists have been working on methods through trial and error and through really strong research questions, 
you can see that there's also it opens up more research questions. So there's so many other things that you know the scientists would love to tackle in the future as well. And the good news is that we're scaling up the restoration project. So there's more and more sites being added, and that's sort of a good thing because you know with more and more sites, there's more and more hands on deck, more and more students are getting involved, and the public as well are becoming really involved. So there's opportunity there to answer some of those unanswered questions that we have. And what sort of plants are the crayweed? They're a seaweed. <laughs> they're a type of seaweed. And they're a gorgeous type of seaweed that can you know, reach up to about two metres in the water column. And they sort of, I don't know if you're familiar with many of the seaweeds that you might see washed up as rack on the beaches. But a really common one is the big broad-leafed kelp. And that might be the one that you're familiar with, with uh, as habitat for the weedy sea dragon. The crayweed itself is a little bit narrower in terms of its blade size. So it's got a sort of a narrow leaf, if you like. And it's a little bit more jagged. But what you might really recognise is if you see it washed up on the beaches, and hopefully now you might be seeing it more and more often in Sydney, but you'll see it predominantly in Palm Beach and not to the north of that, but also Cronulla and to the south of that. So where I live, you'll often see, you know, vast, beautiful forests of this crayweed that supports. I see crayfish darting in and out of the shallows all around it, which is just gorgeous. And it has this most noticeable characteristic is this sort of looks like an air bubble that's attached to all the various different parts of the of the blade and that air bubble is actually it's a vesicle that's just full of air and it helps the plant stand up in the water column obviously to attract light so it can photosynthesize and grow so it's a it's a beautiful adaptation and all in all it's just a a gorgeous looking gorgeous looking seaweed (laughs) so it's it's got a little balloon that's about right. That's about right. The, and the balloon, as I said, sort of helps it, you know, stand up in that water column. And I think it's something that, you know, kids and often fishermen and fishers love to sort of pop if they're bored. <laughs> so, you know, if you pop it, it's basically just full of air, especially when it's nice and dry. And are the seaweed related to algae? They are. They are a form of algae. Exactly right. And you'll have sort of, you know, your brown types, your red types, and then your green types of algae. And this is a type of brown algae. Yeah, there's so many different types of algae, but this, this particular type of, of seaweed called crayweed belongs to the brown seaweeds. So what's the next step once you've replanted some of it and watched how it grows back and you see what sort of flora and fauna comes and moves in? What's the next step? Ah, the next step is to continue the monitoring process. George Wood's research is is um, looking at the at the genetic population structure to see whether all this transplanting that we're doing from northern and southern populations to see whether there's a particular benefit to one particular type of population over another. And it's also to look at, you know, sort of the inbredness and the outbredness of it. So she's exploring those types of research questions currently. And another step is my research is really looking at the social aspects, looking at the community engagement and how to best you know, raise awareness about it. And two years ago, we, we conducted a study at Sculpture by the Sea in Bondi, and we transplanted a showcase demonstration site at Bondi. So if you go along that Bondi walkway, right where the surf club is, uh, you know, just where those rocky sort of shore is and, and um, there's a bit of a, an embayment, there is a transplant site there from 2016 that was showcased by the artist Turpin and Crawford who held an entire half a kilometre exhibit to crayweed. 
And so it's not every day that artists sort of pay a homage to seaweed. And, you know, they, they, they built a strong association with the scientists. And we conducted a social research study at that site. And we interviewed 500 people who were walking by. And I was very interested to know about ways of raising awareness about the project within the broader community in Sydney. The scientists hosted a crowdfunding campaign shortly before the art exhibit that raised about $38,000 in a matter of five days. So it was a highly successful campaign. And we were interested because as part of the website which communicated the science behind the Cray Reed restoration, there was also a gorgeous three-minute film that was highly you know, professionally produced and it had a story. And the story was about the scientists and their methods and how they trialed lots of methods and they were not sure if it would work. So there was a bit of a story arc there to show that, you know, there was a problem, there was a resolution, and then there was a climax when the, the crayweed had had babies. So this story arc seemed to really resonate with people and a lot of people mentioned it. So I put that study to the test at Sculpture by the Sea and gave 500 people science communication by giving some people the story as a film or podcast and some people a more factual-based uh, form of science communication. And we found that on one of the questions we asked, why was the restoration successful, we found that in particular that because the information was placed just after the climax and a lot of the story sort of, you know, typical dramatization, emotionalization, personalization, this language was used in that in that podcast and film, we found that there was a sharp increase in the amount of people that understood that question compared to other, other types of science communication. So we found a sort of a, a strong effect that using story was advantageous if you place it at a particular part of the story arc and use enough of that language associated with story. So you're doing the marine biology and you're doing the social science and the science communication and outreach and you teach as well? That's right. So at the moment I'm also teaching, uh, this is as, as part of my own professional work, I'm a high school teacher, but I'm also teaching primary school kids at the moment who come from Syria, Iran and Iraq. These are refugee students who have come from that, those, those particular areas and we are together creating a marine sort of classroom <laughs> and that's part of my professional background as a high school teacher. So I always want to make sure that I keep my skills as a teacher and, and keep reaching out to those kids and, and we're really enjoying learning at the moment about the Great Southern Reef which is the Great Barrier Reef, very famous. Everyone knows about the beautiful coral and, and the diversity there. But fewer people know about the Great Southern Reef. And that's one of my supervisor's research areas, is, is looking at the area just outside of our doorstep, which is outside Sydney, in the temperate waters. And the Great Southern Reef actually reaches all the way from pretty much south, south of the border of New South Wales and Queensland, and all the way to Kalpabari in Western Australia. So it's this incredible area of, you know, temperate reef ecosystems and rocky reefs that support $10 billion worth of Australian fisheries and we hardly know anything about it or we have it in, the, in the general public. So as, as part of my teaching, I'm sort of taking on board what the scientists I'm learning from, from my supervisors and from papers I read and those Syrian kids and um, Iran-Iraqi kids are sort of receiving an education in, in the Great Southern Reef, which we're enjoying immensely. 
So basically the next steps forward is we're moving into seagrass restoration. So as well as the seaweed restoration techniques that have been really successful as part of Operation Crayweed, we've just launched a new operation and that's Operation Posidonia. And that's to restore an endangered population of seagrass called Posidonia to the areas of Port Stephens and some other areas as well of Central Coast. And that's a team from that work, working collaboratively with DPI in New South Wales, which is located in Port Stephens. Is that the Department of Primary Industries? That's right, the Department of Primary Industries. And we're working with also community. And because it's an endangered population, in this case we're not able to transplant, so we won't be able to remove from the seagrass from donor sites. So we're really relying on the local population, hopefully the early morning dog walk who will see the, that, that washed-up seagrass, Posidonia, which is a broader-leaf species that's slower-growing but very vital for seahorse and, uh, and other fish species throughout estuaries um, and also coastal areas. And we're relying on those, those locals to pick up that, that sort of washed-up rack on the beaches and they're going to take it to a, to a local area for them to, to put place into holding tanks. And from there, it will be transplanted onto mats or into the into the sandy substrate of the Port Stephens area and the Greater Central Coast area. So that's a new project that's sort of moving forwards, and and we're working with another team from the Department of Primary Industries on that. Well, Lana, thank you very much. Ian, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be on your show today. That was Lana Kylick talking about Operation Crayweed at the University of New South Wales and the Sydney Institute of Marine Science. Lana will return next week with a report on her National Science Week activities. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your own voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations. To science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email and ask me some questions that I can answer on air. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com, that's www.diffusionradio.com, and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week 
on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.